Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. You hold the line faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor, living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically. Welcome back to another episode of Holding the Line podcast, where we discuss national security and foreign affairs. I'm your host, retired U.S. Navy Commander Guy Snodgrass, and joining me as co-host, retired U.S. Army Colonel Mark Solomons. Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great, Guy. Good evening. How are, how are you doing this fine May? Uh, you know, it's great to be into May, and it's been fast and furious since we kicked off the podcast. Uh, so I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to take a quick breather. We've had some great guests on over the last month and a half, and uh, just give us a chance to pause and talk about some of the things we've learned so far, what we're seeing in the news of note, and where we think that's going to take us as we go down the road. So some of the things that I'm, I'm kind of tracking on are certainly Kim Jong-un reappearing in the media. We've got uh, Captain Brett Crozier, some updates there. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of oxygen still being sucked out of the room on everything from coronavirus and its impact or possible impact, not only on the lives of Americans and the health of the economy, but also the 2020 election. And then uh, just some, some more crunchy stuff, especially on the technical side with some things that have been making the news, especially in national security circles, which is, are things like the global positioning system. So I figured we just kind of run the gamut. We talk about those things and then we'll get back to our regular programming for the next episode next week. And just a reminder for our listeners as we're getting into the summer months now, especially as we're starting to slowly reopen the economy and get things going, we're going to be switching to a one podcast episode a week for the near term. And then if we find ourselves on a real interesting topic or line of inquiry, as we start getting into, say, the national defense strategy or technologies that we want to cover, we may go back to two a week for a period of time and then get back to the once a week until we get back into the fall. So, all right, Mark, with that being said, Kim Jong-un, he has reappeared evidently as he was touring, I think it was a fertilizer plant. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, it's uh, pretty much... Uh confirmed by a lot of the sources in South Korea. He is alive. I don't know if he's alive and well, but he is alive. And we did see that video of the fertilizer plant. Uh, I don't have no reason to doubt that wasn't him cutting the ribbon. So it's safe to say he is back in business. Now, you know, what degree of uh, health he's at is still kind of a speculative. Uh, you know, I think he has a bad heart to begin with. He's overweight, smoked. So he was definitely uh, probably getting some uh, medical attention off the scene for a few weeks. It reminds me of something my dad always told me when I was growing up, which was, he'd always remind me, only believe half of what you read and none of what you hear. <laughs> so, I, you know, having worked in the strategic communications field for a few years, uh, you know, and it's funny because with North Korea being such a media manipulator, I could almost foresee a weekend at Bernie scenario where they've got some stock footage of him touring a fertilizer plant from six months or a year ago. And with the outsized interest of where is Kim Jong-un that you say, hey, let's just re-roll some, some stock footage, some B-roll and show everyone he's still, still alive and kicking. So who knows exactly what's going on? As you mentioned, the South Koreans were adamant that he was alive and well and there were no problems, and it's interesting that President Trump, amongst others, were alluding that he thought there were some problems, but he didn't want to say anything publicly. So I guess, you know, at this stage, who really knows where that truth lies? 
Yeah, he also probably wanted to escape you know, the coronavirus. Also, let's uh, just take that a little bit further and say, you know, so let's say he was ill or taken out there. Who, who do we think would take over for Kim? I've seen some speculation about his sister. You heard anything about that? You know, I, I haven't. Um, there was an interesting, as you, as you mentioned, a write-up about his sister, a little bit about her biographical information, the fact that she was one of her father's favorite children. You know, basically the, the article mentioned that his two daughters were the favorites who were real hardworking, et cetera. And then Kim Jong-un and his brother were the adults of the family, kind of the lazy ones. So, but it's a very male dominated culture is also what this article mentioned. So they weren't sure about what pathway she would have to ascend to take over the leadership. But they also noted, I guess, that the, the bloodline of that family is incredibly strong in North Korea. It's, and by strong, I mean incredibly important to the people. And so she, along with Kim Jong-un, are the only two who've ever been really loudly proclaimed as continuing that bloodline. So uh, once again, I think, you know, from my vantage point, all bets are off. But I will be, I'm, I've spent six years in the Indo-Pacific region, stationed and based out of Japan, but I am not a North Korean expert when it comes to the political affairs uh, for, like you mentioned, for how they, you know, if Kim Jong-un were to drop off the radar, then who would actually be in line uh, afterwards? Would it create a power struggle or would it actually just pave the way for her to ascend? Right. You know, as much as a brutal leader as he is, uh, rumor is that she's just as uh, bad, if not worse. So uh, it's probably better just to, to stay with what you, you, you know there, assuming the uh, current leader will be getting better. and. We'll start seeing more and more of him on the scene there as their media allows. But uh, yeah, interesting uh, dilemmas up there. And hopefully no spillover with South Korea as they move forward. So another one that had popped on our radar, I mean, continuously over the last month and a half was the firing of Captain Brett Crozier, the commanding officer of the USS Theodore Roosevelt. And of course, the nickel tour here, you know, he had written a memorandum that was leaked through the San Francisco Chronicle, caught a lot of attention. He got fired by acting secretary of the Navy, acting secretary of the Navy, then subsequently resigned slash got asked to leave. Huge blow up for the United States Navy and frankly for the U.S. military, if you don't understand the distinction between each of the branches of the service. And so now you find yourself in a situation where about a week and a half ago, Admiral Gilday, the chief of naval operations, along with the new acting secretary of the Navy, had gone to Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, recommended that Captain Crozier be reinstated because everything that they saw demonstrated he had served honorably, that he had acted honorably. And while maybe writing that four-page memorandum wasn't the best course of action, he did it in good faith and did not deliberately, as far as they know, uh, or their investigation demonstrated, did not leak it or, or send it outside the lifelines. So they recommended him to be reinstated. And then, then Secretary of Defense Esper took a deep breath and said, you know what, we should probably do a deeper investigation here. And so that's been ordered as of last week. And now we're in limbo once again. So I think, you know, this, this raises an interesting question, which is we've talked about this somewhat ad nauseum. There's a, I mean, it's just a continuation of the same themes. But Mark, I'm curious. I mean, with all he's been through, would you even want to come back as a commanding officer? Well, I'm sure deep down, uh, nobody would turn down commanding an aircraft carrier. I mean, I think at the end of the day, regardless of what happened, he would love to get back and uh, jump in the saddle or I guess on the ship there and uh, pick up where he left off. But you're right, there's you know, probably going to be, you know, feeling of somebody looking over his shoulder the rest of his time in command. So you've got to wonder just how much more exciting it would be to finish up his command with a, you know, the added pressure on there. I mean, 
certainly the the Navy, uh, you know, the, the crew and all, and all them have his back. And I think a lot of folks across America, frankly, have his back. But it's Navy and, of course, the military has some questions they're wrestling through with right now. That's why I think Melly and, uh, and Esper delayed the uh, reinstatement. Well, just last week he was, uh, you know, supposed to be reinstated or recommended to be reinstated by the Navy. And here it is a week later. Of course, stuff always comes down on Friday, so I'll be interested to see if we hear something later on tonight. But who knows? I mean, if I was Captain Crozier, I certainly would want to be reinstated. But you're right, that does bring up some interesting questions on how to move forward with them. And something we had touched on very briefly, but for our listeners. So in in each of the branches of the armed service, but specifically here for the Navy, there's a concept called statting out. It's when you reach statutory retirement. And what that means is as, as you progress in rank, you have to advance to the next senior level before you quote stat out. So case in point, Brett Crozier is a U.S. Navy captain. He's a 1992 graduate of the United States Naval Academy. So he only has until 2022 to become a one-star admiral. Failure to do so means that he quote stats out and so the Navy at that point would say, well, you're still a captain. You can only do 30 years of service and we need you to leave. That's another part of this, this element too, is that we're already halfway through 2020. That gives him roughly a year and a half. I mean, he's, he, he either had already run out of time or he's rapidly running out of time where he could be in command of the aircraft carrier long enough to even get a competitive performance evaluation. We call these fit reps or fitness reports in the U.S. Navy. So to get a competitive fitness report, which would then allow him to become a one-star admiral. So frankly, his runway, his, his ability to actually become a one-star and not stat out may be rapidly running out. Now, is there an option that uh, he could be put in command of another, you know, aircraft carrier, or is the pipeline for those done years ahead of time? So it's uh, either the Roosevelt or nothing? Yes, they are definitely done. If not years, then certainly six months or so ahead of time. You have, when you think about the number of aircraft carriers, you know, you got 11 frontline aircraft carriers. That's a very small number of individuals. It's a very small pool to draw from. You're not talking that you have 30 nuclear trained Navy captains who are also aviators and carrier eligible. You have, in this case, maybe a pool of, uh, you know, as they're going through, if you've got 11 carriers, you've got like 12, 13 people who are qualified. So when you have someone who gets ill and can no longer be in command, if you have someone who like Captain Crozier gets relieved for cause, then there's just very few people that they can bring in in his place. And that's why you had the previous commanding officer, Captain Sardiello, who had been brought back to retake command because he'd been the immediate predecessor to Crozier. So he retook command of the Roosevelt. He was already selected for one-star admiral. So his career right now is kind of on hold as he retakes or he's already retaken the reins of the TR for the time being. But yeah, there's, you know, to take, to take Crozier, send him to a whole nother aircraft carrier, now say he's a command. I mean, one, there's no opening available for him at the moment. And then you'd have to wait for that rotation. By that point, he would be, uh, relatively speaking, ancient. Uh, and it would be very difficult for him to, to even get time in command before he'd have to retire. Right. Well, I guess one other option. I mean, I assume he did, what, nine months for a year on the, uh, the Roosevelt. They could just give him a you know, fit rep and say recommend promote the flag and move on and then have him move to his next job right now, right? I think that'd be challenging because I think that would exacerbate. So the concern that some longstanding old, you know, the graybeards, if you will, in the U.S. Navy was that if you reinstate Crozier before all the facts have been publicly known, that it might, it might signal something along the lines that 
social media and the media itself could force the Navy's hand and force this course of action. Now, I think that since Admiral Gilday and the United States Navy has completed their investigation, or at least their preliminary investigation, and recommended Crozier for reinstatement, I think that gives Crozier a fairly good, clean bill of health. But at the same time, to give him a fitness report so early into his tenure when he still needs to compete. I mean, he, he has time to go. Now, I think if you were to put him back in the TR, even if he was going to be in charge of the Theodore Roosevelt through the entirety of his, you know, through his 30th year, but if in his 29th year, so 2021, if he was then selected for Admiral while he's the commanding officer in an aircraft carrier, that would pass the sniff check. And I think people both inside and outside the Navy could say, yeah, this guy, you know, he's earned that spot. But to give it to him now, especially for only that short amount of time, most most typical aircraft carrier COs are in charge of an aircraft carrier for usually two and a half to three years. It's a long tenure. So, okay. so let's, uh, let's change gears one more time. You know, last two episodes of the podcast, we had the opportunity to talk to former Deputy Secretary of Defense, Bob Work. He walked us through a concept called the third offset strategy. The first offset being the use of nuclear weapons to counter the Russian use of mass, a large number of forces. So that was our first offset strategy. The second offset strategy was being able to step away from just sheer numbers of uh, weapons by, by using precision guided munitions. So if you could use far fewer munitions, that means you could have a much smaller force and you could be much more you could target with precision and you could strike with precision. And uh, it kind of drove everything about the development of the U.S. military from certainly 1980, 1990s and onward. And that's led to where we are now, a restored competition between the U.S. and some rising competitors like China. And so that's led to this uh, increase in something called the third offset strategy. That's taking a look at everything from autonomy, artificial intelligence, hypersonics, uh, cyber warfare, all, you know, additive manufacturing, all like the kind of Gucci cutting edge technology. So that was a great conversation, but it got me thinking. I mean, one, we talked a little bit last time about the budget and what the concerns are there, but here we are, you know, we're, we're in May of 2020 and Wow. I mean, it seems like things have accelerated quickly because the 2020 election is really, for all intents and purposes, not that far off. So, Mark, I'm kind of curious your thoughts. You know, we've seen three and a half-ish years of a Trump administration. So, we, I think we have a pretty good idea of what that looks like. We've also experienced eight years of an Obama presidency, of which then Vice President Joe Biden, who's now running for the Democratic, you know, uh, to be the Democratic president, so I think we've got a pretty good feel for both of those candidates and what their platforms look like from a defense-centric standpoint. So I'm kind of curious, like what, what kind of considerations do you think this will have for the U.S. military, depending on what the outcome of the November election looks like? Right. Well, a lot of points to unpack in there, Buzz. Uh, yeah, first of all, I mean, Bob Work, I mean, I tell you what an amazing guy. We're lucky to have him involved with a, a third offset strategy, you know, things that need to be done in the Department of Defense. But uh Moving on to your question and moving forward there, uh, let's be honest. You, know, you and I both know Congress controls the purse strings, so come November, I think the military's run on the budgets they've had over the past three years is coming to an end. Now, that's just not necessarily a, a factor of uh, corona. It's just also a factor of just you know, reaching the uh, – or getting a handle on just how much we're spending on, on the Department of Defense. I mean, $750 billion – you know, this year, and what's it all going for? I mean, there's going to be a lot of folks uh, looking closely, you know, especially if the administration changes out of the Biden administration versus the Trump administration, you're going to have a 
uh, two different scenarios going on there. Biden and his team, I think, will obviously maintain what they can, but I think you'll have a lot more people taking a close look with a scalpel at what what can go. I mean, throwing coronavirus, you know, funding on top of that, and you have a a country that's spending out of control right now. You know, you mentioned the budget, and that's a great point, regardless of whether it's a continuation of the Trump administration or Trump is defeated in the November election, and, and now you've got a president, Joe Biden, and his administration. Regardless, so much money has now been dumped into coronavirus recovery efforts. I mean, they're now talking about an additional two, three, four trillion dollars coming up in short order. That's certainly just lumping more and more debt out there. The budget's going to be out of whack for a period of time. So like you said, I mean, a $750 billion budget is not the DOD's future. You know, it, it, it reminds me, one of the more interesting aspects of my time with Jim Mattis, and, and something I liked about working for Secretary Mattis was, you know, you get to see behind the scenes on a lot of these big muscle movements. And so we would, you know, on, on the budget topic, we would do a series of events throughout the year called the Big Eight Breakfast. The reason why it's called Big Eight is because you really have four committees that are, that are instrumental for the Department of Defense as you think about budgets, as you think about the direction of the military. So you have the House and the Senate Armed Services Committee. Those are, are, are what's known as the HASC and the SASC. Then you also have the House and the Senate Appropriations Committee, so HACC and SAC. So what you'll do is you'll invite the two leaders, the majority leader. So if you're in the House, the senior leader who's the Democrat for each of those committees, if you're in the Senate, the uh, Republican, and you also invite what's known as a ranking member. So that's the individual who's got the most seniority on the committee from the other side of the aisle. So those are the eight people that you'd bring over to the Department of Defense, to the Pentagon, and you would do a breakfast with them. And we do this two or three times a year. And it was fascinating to, to be a fly on the wall and hear these conversations because you've got, of course, these incredibly senior senators and members of Congress who are having very open conversations with the Secretary of Defense, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, the Comptroller about what the future looks like. And look, I mean, it, there was a reality that the budget deficits were of significant concern to members of Congress. One of the reasons why America has continued to be a powerhouse around the world is because of our economic strength. And of course, now more than ever, at least in the most recent past, I mean, that's called into question. But to hear them talk openly about the need to balance domestic spending with military spending, I thought was noteworthy and also heartening because they want to strive for balance as much as possible. And it reminds me a little bit of President Eisenhower, of course, who wanted to see more money actually spent for domestic programs than he did for the military. He was too, he was concerned about the military industrial complex. So to hear those kinds of conversations and to know that some of the members who are still there in Congress who, who were willing to, in 2018, give Mattis, give the Department of Defense those two years of budget stability, and not just stability, but significantly increased budgets to help restore readiness and to start positioning for modernization. And as you mentioned, Mark, I mean, that money is basically dried up at this point. And so it's going to be tough calls all around, regardless of whether it's defense or non-defense spending. But I think there's going to be a lot of, of just necessity for any money that's earmarked for what's called discretionary spending, that that's going to start being biased towards domestic programs over the military for obvious reasons as we dig out from coronavirus. Yeah, one other question for you guys. I know uh, you had a big hand in that national defense strategy. So let's... Uh you know, look at it a little further with a great power competition with a reduced budget. Can, you know, we still even come close to following through on that strategy or are they going to have to relook, uh, rewrite you know, another NDS to, uh, you know, account for the tighter fiscal constraints coming down the pipe? 
And that's a great question. I think there's a reality that a strategy without a budget is a hallucination. That's a quote I'd used when we spoke with Bob Work. And that is, that's just the truth. I mean, you could have the, the most grand plans, but if you can't find a way to fund it, then you can't bring it to reality. So I think that's number one. I mean, will you get the budget you need or not? The other aspect of this is, as I think back to the meetings we'd have, just a small group, you know, Mattis, and it's for a period of time, Bob Work, Buzz Phillips, you know, you had about maybe 10 people total in a room for multiple meetings about creation of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. Mattis was constantly asking if there was a way, if there was a mechanism by which we could produce the strategy, which came out in January of 2018, but then basically every six months, take a fresh look at it. To your point, course correct. And the determination was made, one, I mean, in a, in a department as large as the Department of Defense, that's just crazy because by the time you even, you need about six months just to make sure the whole military and the Department of Defense knows what's going on and what's in the strategy, let alone start to change it because then it's just tough to know what's, which way's up. But probably every two to three years is about the right timeline. And so we're already at that point right now. And the 2020 election is going to be a great example of, of a perfect opportunity to redress the strategy itself, to recalibrate it for the realities, both fiscal as well as the electoral realities and move forward from there. But if we, if, if you don't sustain funding, then you're going to have to make some hard decisions. And, and I think based on what I learned from the meetings that I was privy to and, and took part in, I would bias towards readiness over growing the force. And I would also continue to bias towards modernization, right? So if you have those three major pieces of the pie, if you have modernization, so investing in the latest and greatest, growing the size of the force, and then simply maintaining the readiness of the force you have. I think it's more important to maintain the readiness you have and to still position for the future. I would forsake the ability to simply grow the military for having a larger military sake. But I'm curious what your take is, especially with, through the lens of the Army. Oh, yeah. I've always been a big fan of you know putting modernization first. I mean, readiness, you can go, uh, obviously you got to have a certain capable force there, but readiness is such a... Uh, a nebulous term there and everybody uses it to make whatever case they're making. So I definitely invest whatever funds are allocated or uh, authorized to, uh, to uh, modernization. And uh, I would relook at the, uh, the four size of contract, you know, for many years, we've always had the two war contract. I'm hearing talks in my circles that they're, they're now relooking at maybe a, a one and a one light or something there. But I think it's something we have to take a look, you know, a, a long, hard look at it. You know, just, have one pacing threat. Maybe China's a, a pacing threat and Russia you know, gets lower priority. But at the end of the day, we got to modernize our equipment. That's, that is job one, as they like to say, modernize. The other thing I think that we would really be well served to take a hard look at is our own version of, of kind of a current day competitive strategy. And so that's a, that's a very loosely used term. But the one I always, the period I always think about is the 1980s under President Reagan when you had a lot of really smart people coming together and it was everything from a disinformation campaign against the Russians to how do you signal, how do you compete economically? It was a whole of government strategy and approach to win against the Soviet threat. And as we know, as, as we kind of peel back on history, it wound up being very successful. And I think the, the biggest danger right now with the way strategists think about the US military is we wanna compete where we've traditionally been strong. And so it's like you just said, let's modernize, let's, let's grow the force. Let's do, let's do more of what's made it successful in the past. 
And I think that gives a huge window of opportunity to a nation like China, who wants to be a usurper on the global stage. They don't have to play that game. They can grow their force a little bit. They can modernize some, but they can find ways to be asymmetric against the United States capabilities in order to have outsized effects. And so even though the United States is, the, is at the top of the heap right now, you know, still king of the hill, that does, I still think that there's a great opportunity here to almost like have a tiger team. You lock them in a room for about a year and say, okay, you've got access to, this, to the best intel, the smartest people. Think about ways that if you're competing against nation state competitors like Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, if those, one, are those still the same four threats now in 2021 as they were in 2018? Uh, and if the answer is yes, well, then great. So how do you take a look at what they're doing and then come up with, our, once again, our own asymmetric capabilities to really spend less money and be more targeted in our approach that's going to give us outsized effects, not just spend tons of money on kind of more of the same? Yeah, I agree. And one of those persons that needs to be locked in that room is Bob Work there and get his uh, ideas into the, uh, the uh, worker bees there and get that going through the pipeline. Before we move on, Let's take one step back, and I think there's one thing we didn't touch on in the 2020 election, and again, this is you know, self-serving bias, right? We, we're two military guys. We're talking about the military. We're talking about budgets. I think one of the big areas that would be most changed, depending on the 2020 election, would be the role of allies and partners for a combined kind of international defense, right? So there's been a lot of ink spilled over the fact that the United States' reputation abroad has suffered. And it's interesting because there's still some topics that have yet to be resolved, like the burden sharing with South Korea, the burden sharing with Japan. Where we left off before coronavirus was the Trump administration had asked for a 500% increase in the amount of money that both of those nations were supposed to pay towards towards stationing troops there. And both of those nations had said, no, not going to happen. And right as coronavirus was hitting, Ambassador Harris, the United States ambassador to South Korea, had announced that they were going to be furloughing. South Korean workers from Camp Humphreys and other bases in South Korea because of the lapse in that agreement. And you haven't heard anything since. So I suspect it's still on the ropes. But I think that that's going to be, if there's a continuation of the Trump administration, I think you know how pressurized the environment will be for allies and partners. And it's going to complicate the, the America's ability to do things cooperatively with other nations. I do think that if President Biden winds up being the next president of the United States, if it, if it is a President Biden, that that's going to signal a fairly strong restoration of the international order that that most national security planners and operators had been used to for decades. Oh yeah, no, I'm with you on that. I mean, Trump administration, four more years. Uh, I don't know how much more damage we can do to our allies and partners around the world. I mean, it's uh, really uh, hurts me to, to see uh, some of the countries and and what they're uh, going through right now due to some of our own. Uh, whatever stipulations, unnecessary stipulations were putting on them. I mean, the U.S. and the military in particular, one thing they have going for them is their relationships around the world. I mean, that is our strong suit. Allies and partners start building some bridges or repairing some damage because with this budget coming and who knows what's going to happen with Corona, we're going to be relying on these allies and partners to get us through the next few years and a lot more in, into the future. Put in a Biden presidency, I think a lot of folks will be, uh, they already know what, you know, he's about, and I've worked with him when he was in the Senate, and I don't think he'll do a lot more different than when he was vice president, and many of the policies that the Obama administration have would probably come back into play. They may relook, you know, some of them that didn't work out so well, and uh, 
and try to change those, but keep what they did. But I think for the most part, most of the world is, you know, looking forward to get back to how things were there in, like you said, the touch of base on the international order concept and how that was working for the United States for many decades. That, you know, ever since World War II, I think the third iteration of the international order, and it's many countries around the world have benefited immensely, even some of our adversaries because of, you know, what we have put in place since World War II. So I'm, I'm uh, really I'd be interested to see what's going to happen come November here. Yeah, and it was interesting because so many of the different strategies that each of the services, let alone America, has come up with largely rely on allies and partners to augment military strength, to augment intelligence strength, right? So we have a concept like or a construct like Five Eyes, where you have five nations, including the United States, that, that partner together to share intelligence information to help each other out. When you do that, that is a, it's a magnifying strength, not only for intel sharing, but military forces sharing and, and helping when you need it most. And so if you think about the Obama years, that w- those were very difficult years for the U.S. military. With sequestration, the Budget Control Act, the military started atrophying very quickly. I mean, jets were having a lot of problems. There was a lot of issues with readiness. And so you've restored some of that over the last couple of years, not all of it, but definitely some of it. And the vector was good from a budgetary standpoint, but you just torched a lot of your alliances and your uh, relationship with allies and partners. And in fact, we stopped doing major exercises with South Koreans, right? Uh, in order to get the opportunity for Trump to, to work with Kim Jong-un and start to quote, you know, basically building a better relationship with North Korea it was a very aspirational goal, but you traded away the very real military exercises. So that readiness between South Korean and American forces is definitely atrophied. So, I mean, there's definitely a trade there, but I think if you start looking at this from the much bigger lens of what matters most for U.S. supremacy, for U.S. continued strength, it's probably going to be the allies and partners over the immediate strength of the U.S. military for the near term. So like you said, you know, obviously we've got months to go before the November election. We'll keep tracking this. And as we learn more about each candidate's policy, policy positions, then we'll, we'll highlight things of interest for our listeners and we'll continue to dig into it. So I guess one last thing that would be interesting to cover is there's been some news recently about companies that want to butt in on the 5G spectrum. That's the new, one of the newer latest and greatest technologies, especially for everyone's smartphones. But to do so means they might be disruptive to GPS, the global positioning system. So I'm curious, has this popped on your radar much or? Kind of a gearhead like yourself there. I'm kind of watching it uh, closely and I'd be interested to see, you know, where, where the, uh, the folks that really do this day to day are, are going to try to take, take uh, not just the country, but you know, international operations. I mean, GPS ties into so many things we do. I mean, most folks just think of it, you know, their car and you know, plug in a, you know, something in their map to get me from A to B. But it ties into so many other things. There, you know, you and I were talking earlier about ATM machines. Maybe you go into just some of the uh, implications that the uh, the five uh, G will have for America coming down the road here. What I can say is I've I've had some conversations with some of the smart people inside the Pentagon, also over at the Senate Armed Service Committee. What they are genuinely concerned. There's a commercial company called Legato that evidently has been trying to work, well, has been working very heavily with the Trump administration to gain access to what's called mid-band 5G, 
And so this is a grouping of frequencies that are close to the GPS frequencies. And that's the concern from the Department of Defense. So Def Department of Defense is charged with the GPS constellation and its upkeep. And so they're saying, look, you could, if you give away this portion of the spectrum to a company like Legato or others, then you're going to degrade GPS capabilities. And, and Mark, like you were just saying, that's the thing about GPS. And there's certain technologies in certain areas that, that present critical vulnerabilities for America. GPS is one of them. I mean, it's, it's amazing that when you launch these satellites into, into orbit, and suddenly you realize, hey, not only can they provide positioning information, but they provide what's called PNT, so precise navigation and timing. Well, that timing is used for a whole lot of different things. I mean, and like you said, the your ATM, when you go to get money, when you when you have stock transactions, a lot of monetary transactions, those rely on precise timing capability, and a lot of that's derived from GPS. And GPS allows you to synchronize a lot of different activities across America. Well, if someone were just to take GPS out, and that could be you certainly could go all the way to shooting down a satellite, or it could be relatively as simple as blocking the signals for a prolonged period of time, or you're able to conduct a cyber attack where you disable the constellation for a period of time. Well, everything that's now in sync starts to, starts to fade away and float away from each other. You lose that sync, and so you lose communication. And again, it's everything from eight from... ATMs to communications to, I mean, it's just a wide range of issues. So that's, that's why the Department of Defense is becoming very alarmed that Legato and others might be able to crowd into the spectrum because they see it as a national security risk. Yeah, that'll be huge. Uh, one other question for you. Do you have any thoughts on a, whether it should be privatized or public? I see a debates going on in some of the circles there on, on which would make more sense for the 5G network there. Yeah, I, you know, if it's genuinely, I'm, I'm typically biased towards you can you can privatize stuff, um, and the commercial entities tend to do a really nice job of ensuring that uh, well, it's competitive. So typically, you you get cost savings and other things go along with it. That changes a little bit, like we're talking about here with the 5G spectrum and and how close it is to GPS. And everything else. I mean, when it really turns into a national security risk, I think that's something where the federal government should have the capability to step in. And and when you you know you could you could take that school of thought right to where we were with and have been with coronavirus, which is, uh, hey, states' rights and governors, you know, handling the response for their individual states, just like President Trump himself had said, look, it's like a you know, it's like a cage match. Uh, there's only so many masks and respirators to go around. I'm going to throw them in this cage and then everyone's going to fight for them and whoever, you know, can, can you know, whatever it takes. Um, best of luck. War of all against all there. Right. And, and so I think that's where it gets into, look, th that's why you have a federal government. That's why the founders felt that there were certain activities that should be relegated or overseen by a federal entity because it, it permits that coordination. And coronavirus response, lack thereof, depending on where you fall on, on the political spectrum or just how you feel about coronavirus in general. But that's the nature, that's what the federal government buys you is the ability to set a nationwide strategy, but then also work with the governors, work with each individual state, work with corporations using the uh, Defense Production Act to be able to coordinate a nationwide effort so that you can start to uh, 
position so that we all win together. And it's not just every, every state for themselves. And so I think that's a good example for 5G and say that, okay, sometimes competition's good, letting commercial actors take part is good, but if it's going to have a, a very significant national security implication, then that's where the federal government should step in and say, okay, look, this is, we're going to reserve this part of the spectrum and we're, gonna, we're not gonna allow it to become accessible unless you've proven that it is safe to do so. Well, that's exciting. Let's keep this 5G on our burner as we, we move forward because we're gonna hear a lot more about this in the coming months there. You bet. Well, hey, thanks for your time, Mark. Uh, as always, there's no shortage of things to talk about when you think about foreign affairs and national security. For our listeners, uh, thanks for hanging with us. Always good to be with you. Like I mentioned, the schedule, we're going to be going to uh, one episode per week. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or your, your podcasting platform of choice, go ahead and follow us or subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review. All those things are incredibly beneficial to us and will help us to continue to bring you top-notch content. But thanks for being with us, and we'll look forward to catching you next week.